morning, folks. Thanks again for joining us for this time of corporate worship. In the Gospel according to John, we find this parable told by Jesus in John chapter 10. You don't have to turn there, but listen as I read from the New International Version. Very truly, I tell you Pharisees. Now the Pharisees were the self-appointed religious watchdogs of Jesus' day. They saw their job is to ensure that the Jews upheld the Mosaic law. Jesus was addressing these religious elites when he said this. Anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him. The sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. Jesus was describing a legitimate shepherd rather than an imposter, someone who is pretending to be a shepherd of the sheep. And he continued, but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize the stranger's voice. Verse 6 informs us that Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again. So this is his second attempt to try and clarify things for these thick-headed Pharisees. Verily, truly, I say to you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Did you catch that? Jesus came so that we may have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. Have it rich and satisfying life. And verse 11 reads, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And that is exactly what Jesus did. He laid down his life so that we might have life and have it to the full. Beloved, God desires you and I to have a full life. How good is that? And through Solomon, God communicates that same message here in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. If you have a copy of the scriptures with you this morning, I invite you to turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 11, please. Now, although having 
life to the full is God's desire. It is neither automatic nor is it imposed on any one of us. God takes initiatives to make this life to the full a possibility. He invites us to respond appropriately to his initiatives. And then he waits patiently. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slow about his promise. And here he's specifically referring to the second coming of Christ. But his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. God wants you to have life and have it to the full. That's why he sent Jesus. And that's why he communicates this message through King Solomon here in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. And so the purpose of this morning's message is to motivate you to embrace life in the mist. Not just grin and bear it. But to actually embrace it. Jesus did not come so that we may have life and have it to the full in eternity. In heaven, after we die. That's certainly part of it. But make no mistake about it. He came so that you might have life and have it to the full, both now and forever. Embracing your life in the mist is for today and for forever. Allow me to read these 10 verses in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. We'll pray and then we'll take some time to focus on the truth as it's presented in this chapter of the Word of God. So if you will, please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven, or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. The light is pleasant, and is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in all of them, and let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is is to come will be futility. 
Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for, your, for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body. Because childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. This is the word of, the God, word of God to us this morning. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, you are a God who makes all things, as Jeff has already referred to this morning. And in the words of the psalmist, O Lord, how many are your works. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your possessions. The Apostle Paul also affirms that it was by him, by Jesus, that all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. We've gathered here this morning acknowledging you as the one true creator God who has revealed himself to us in creation, but even more specifically in the pages of this book, the Bible. An inspired, infallible, inerrant, trustworthy, authoritative, sufficient, and supernaturally preserved revelation of your person, plans, purposes, and perspective. Through it, we have learned that you have a sovereign plan that will make all things beautiful at the appropriate time. In the meantime, enable us to trust you, even when life under the sun doesn't make sense to us, or is harsh, confusing, full of uncertainty, or even disappointing and discouraging. Use Ecclesiastes chapter 11 this morning to point us in the right direction, leading and empowering us to that place where we might have life and have it to the full as you intended and desire for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Embracing your life is for today and forever. This passage of scripture is actually the most directive passage that we've encountered in the entire book of Ecclesiastes. In just ten verses, Solomon commands us, gives eight imperatives. That's almost one imperative for every verse. Eight commandments to be obeyed. Not suggestions to be considered or alternatives or options from which we can choose, but, but commands. To obey or not to obey, that is the question. And to not to obey is to sin. And sin 
separates us from God. Or at least, at the very least, undermines our relationship with him. I've highlighted these words in my Bible, and I would encourage you to underline them in yours. Verse 1, the very first word, cast, is an imperative. Verse 2, divide. Verse 6, sow. Verse 9, rejoice. Later in the same verse, follow is an imperative. And then near the end of that verse is the word know. Another imperative. Three commands in just one verse. Then we come to verse 10, and there's two more. Remove and put away. Clearly, embracing life in the mist requires some work on your part and on mine. This is not a let go and let God scenario. God has taken the initiative. Remember, he has a plan. A sovereign God with a plan that is detailed, permanent, perfect, purposeful, and predictable. And what I meant by predictable is it is absolutely consistent with who he is, with his character. And so you and I can be absolutely certain that as God's plan is worked out, it is for his glory and for your good and my good. And yet, from the very beginning of the book, King Solomon describes this life that we are to embrace as vanity of vanities. Chapter 1, verse 2, all is vanity. Meaning that life under the sun is transitory. It's always changing. It's the polar opposite of God's plan of being permanent, perfect, and predictable. And as a result, it can at times be confusing, puzzling. And there will be those times when you and I are left scratching our heads, wondering how in the world does this fit into God's plan? Solomon admitted all of that. And yet here in chapter 11, he's pushing us to embrace this life in the mist so that we might have life and have it to the full, even today. Are you ready for a little push this morning in the right direction? Look again at verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. See that little phrase, you do not know? I hope you haven't put your pencil away. You may want to circle that or put a square around it or underline it. It's used again in verse 5, twice actually. Just as you do not know 
the path of the wind and how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. So you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Then again in verse 6, sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know, you do not know. What's all that tell us? Solomon acknowledges, but does not want the mysteries or the unknowns, those unanswerable questions that continue to roll around in our heads to keep us or prevent us from embracing life in the mist. Solomon mentions actually four specific mysteries attached to this life under the sun that remain beyond our understanding. Things that we do not know. And this section of chapter 11 reminds me of Agur's comments in Proverbs chapter 30. Remember beginning at verse 18? There are three things that are too wonderful for me, for which I do not understand, the way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship in the middle of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. Doesn't understand him. And here in chapter 11, King Solomon adds to Agar's list of things that you will find very hard to understand. You do not know, first of all, what misfortune may occur on the earth. We don't know what that light is at the end of the tunnel. It could be the exit or it could be the light, the headlight of a freight train bearing down on us. We don't know. We do not know what the future holds. Secondly, you do not know the path of the wind, how the bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant women, woman. We've talked about this before. That Hebrew word translated wind is the same word that can be translated spirit. And so based on the context of this particular verse, Solomon maybe perhaps is referring to the whole person that's being formed in the womb, both the spiritual and physical aspects of this new human being being created in the womb of its mother. Now I realize that today we know a whole lot more about the development of a human being from conception to birth, all that's taking place in a womb. We know a lot more than Solomon did in his day. But folks, I stood in the operating room for all three of our son's births. And it took my breath away. Like, I don't think that we can actually witness the birth of a child, a new human being, and not be absolutely in awe. I can remember thinking at the time, this is an absolute miracle that we can actually produce a human being with 
fingernails, the whole works. And I tell you, each time, like the first one, I was just completely oblivious. Didn't know what was going on. But as we had, by the time the third one came along, I was unbelievably nervous. Because by this time, my parents had now had eight healthy grandchildren. And I just thought we were really pushing the, the odds at this stage. And so I was so thankful that Luke arrived safe and sound. A miracle. The psalmist actually shares our marvel at, when he reflects on his own development in his mother's womb. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 13 to 15. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. It's a miracle. The birth of every child ought to be something that, that takes our breath away and that we're prepared to admit that my understanding is limited on how all that works. I cannot fully comprehend it. Thirdly, you do not know the activity of God. And we may catch glimpses now and again of God's activity, but for the most part, his ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah, the prophet, says, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Our understanding of God's purpose, his person, his plans, and even his perspectives will always be limited. Our finite minds cannot fully grasp the thoughts of our infinite God. Fourthly, you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed. It's absolutely impossible for us to predict the returns on our investment of time, energies, and resources. Will it produce a crop that is 30, 60, even 100 times what we planted? Or nothing at all? Who knows? There will always be those nervous, anxious moments as we await the return on our investments. But not knowing did not prevent King Solomon from pushing us to embrace our life in the mist. Did you feel that gentle push? Embrace your life in the mist with limited understanding. It's the only way it can happen. Your understanding can only go so far. Embrace your life in the mist with limited understanding. 
And what might that look like if we decided, I'm going to do that? Remember those imperatives we talked about earlier? There's three of them in this verse, in these verses. Cast, divide, and sow. Verse 1, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. Now some see this imagery as a call to philanthropy. We are to share what God has entrusted to us with those who have less than we do, who are unfortunate. They have needs. And the thinking is that you don't know. Sometime you may have needs. And in that way, others will be able to respond likewise. But considering this context of these verses, that seems a little bit of a stretch. It seems that Solomon is just talking about a plain old business adventure. In 1 Kings chapter 10, we're given an overview of King Solomon's wealth and wisdom. And contained in that overview, in verse 22, we read, the king had a fleet of trading ships of Tarsus that sailed with Hiram's fleet. Once every three years, the ships returned loaded with gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. I can remember when our guys were younger, casting bread upon the water to feed some of the ducks in the Saskatchewan River. But there was never any return on that activity. In fact, as soon as the bread was gone, the ducks just disappeared. They moved on. Solomon's not referring to literal, literal bread here but materials that sustain and promote life. It seems reasonable to understand this as a reference to his engagement in international trade, loading up those boats, sending them out, and seeing them come back loaded with merchandise. And in that sense, he's pushing you and I to invest in the future. Don't just live for today. And of course, there's no guarantees, but what is that saying? Nothing ventured, nothing gained. Invest and wait. After many days. And in Solomon's case, it was a three-year waiting period. Once every three years, the ships returned. But here in the twilight years of his life, Grandpa Solomon is giving us some advice. Actually, I don't know whether we can call it advice because it's not presented as an option. Invest in the future. Little by little, cast your bread on the surface of the waters. And secondly, verse 2, divide your portion. In other words, don't put all your Eggs in one basket. Diversify your investments. As you know, this is good financial advice. Talk to any financial advisor. 
and he will or she will say that diversification is essential to a balanced investment portfolio. What may surprise you is that Solomon gave this advice about 3,000 years ago. Same advice. Thirdly, notice verse 6. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening. Invest in the future, diversify your investments, and focus on doing the things that you can do. Years ago, I read an illustration that talks about a circle of concern and a circle of influence. The circle of, conf- the circle of concern within that circle are all the things that you're concerned about. Outside the circle, you couldn't care less. But there's all kinds of things that you and I are concerned about. Our kids, our, our finances, our, our employment, uh, COVID-19, all kinds of things that, that concern us. And that's within the circle of concern. But within that circle of concern, there's a smaller circle called the circle of influence. And within that circle of influence are things that concern us, but they're things that we can actually do something about. Get the difference? Circle of concern, circle of influence are things that we're concerned about that we can actually do something about. In verses 3 and 4, Solomon addresses a couple of very common potential distractions that will keep us from focusing on the things that we can actually do something about. Things that will keep us from focusing on things within that circle of influence. Doing the things that we can actually do. Verse 3, notice, The clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth, and whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, whatever the tree falls, there it lies. You and I can be concerned about rain and falling trees, but those, both of those things are way beyond our circle of influence. So what is Solomon's point? Don't allow the things that you cannot control prevent you or keep you from doing the things that you can do. Don't allow the things that you can't control keep you from doing the things that you can do. Verse 4, he who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. What's the distraction that Solomon's pointing to here? Don't wait for the conditions to be absolutely perfect before doing what you can do. Here's the commentary on these two verses. Men who insist on certainties or even just the most favorable conditions prior to acting will never do anything. So how do you respond to those things that concern you that are beyond your control? Or when you're facing fearful circumstances or, or, th- or something that you, you're fearing what could happen, how do you respond? Some people are paralyzed by their fears. 
other people procrastinate. But Solomon reminds us of one thing that is within your circle of influence. The one thing that you can control. Do you see it there? When you will sow. That is completely within your circle of influence. When you will sow. Cynthia and I made a quick, quick trip to the farm on Friday, my day off, to visit my dad. And so we sat on the back porch and the 100 acres of wheat spread out before us and golden brown, just absolutely beautiful. And dad said, this is the week, this coming week, they'll be harvesting the wheat. You see, there are many things that you do not know. But one thing you and I both know, we will never reap if we never sow. Walt Kaiser states it simply, the duty is ours. The results are God's. Invest in the future. Diversify your investments. Sow your seed. What will God do? Who knows? But you will never reap if you never sow. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58 reads, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Embracing your life in the mist is for today and for forever. In the first six verses, we underlined the phrase, you do not know. There is a common theme running through these final four verses as well. Verse 8, let him rejoice. Beginning of verse 9, rejoice. And then just a little ways further on in the same verse, let your heart be pleasant. Again, an indication of rejoicing. And then in verse 10, Remove grief and anger and put away pain. So in the first half, Solomon was pushing you to embrace your life with limited understanding. And here in the second part, he's pushing us to embrace our lives in the mist with unlimited joy. A few weeks back, I shared this quote from Philip Riken. To be joyful is to find our fundamental satisfaction in God and then to receive every pleasure in life as a gift of his grace. Let's just sit with that for a moment. Allow it to kind of seep into your mind and heart. To be joyful is to find our fundamental satisfaction in God. Think of all the things in your life that compete with 
trying to find your ultimate satisfaction in your relationship with God. In his person and his plans for your life. All those things that keep you from loving God with all of your heart, all of your mind, and all of your soul and all of your strength. Those are keeping you from experience the kind of joy that Solomon's referring to here in Ecclesiastes chapter 11. But what would that look like? Being joyful as a result of finding our fundamental satisfaction in God. Remember the imperatives in this section? Rejoice, follow, know, remove, and put away. Rejoice. Rejoice in the goodness of life while you can. Verses 7 and 8. The psalmist acknowledged the limits God has placed on our lives. You saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. He's talking about your life and my life. Psalm 39 verse 4. Lord, remind me how brief my time on earth will be. Remind me that my days are numbered. How fleeting life is. James chapter 4, verse 14. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. No one knows the number of their days. Only God. How do you see your life? Is life half empty or half full? Solomon is pushing us to wake up every morning, every single morning. Take your pulse, and if you find one, choose to rejoice in all of them. Secondly, follow, yet know. Notice the middle of verse 9. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. He's talking to a young man, specifically. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. Why do you have to throw that wet blanket on? But what he's saying is, is pursue God honoring hopes and dreams. Although it may seem like a wet blanket... I think we need to recognize that the only path to happiness is the path to holiness. All that other stuff is temporary. And it may feel good at the time, but it's a mirage. It will leave you, well, it will give you a moment of pleasure. That's what sin does. But will leave you with emptiness, Regret, isolation, despair, 
and on the path to destruction. The path to happiness, the joy that we're talking about here, is the path to holiness. Thirdly, remove and put away. Verse 10, so remove grief and anger from your heart and put away I was just checking, is that my phone? I hope not. (laughs) And put away pain from your body. Here we go. Eliminate joy busters. That phrase, grief and anger, is actually translating one Hebrew word, which has a meaning that is really difficult for us to capture in English. And probably if you... If you push them hard enough, the translators, they would say the closest we can come in one single English word is bitterness. Eliminate joy busters. And there's no bigger joy buster than bitterness. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 15 reads in the New Living Translation, look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. Watch out that no poisonous root of bitterness grows up to trouble you, corrupting many. With bitterness, everybody loses. It's uncontainable. It just spreads like a COVID-19 virus. There's no good side to bitterness. Get rid of it. And if you need help getting rid of it, then seek counsel. But don't let it fester in your life. Put away physical pain. Physical pain is an evil that we are right to avoid or try and eliminate as much as possible. In verse 10, the New Living Translation reads, So refuse to worry and keep your body healthy. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7 offers an antidote. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God, which transcends all human understanding, all human comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice in the goodness of life itself. Pursue God-honoring hopes and dreams. I know he's talking about young men. I would say any of us. Pursue God-honoring hopes and dreams. And then eliminate joy busters. That is how you embrace your life in the mist with unlimited joy. Solomon, like Jesus, wants us to have life and have it to the full. Have it abundantly. Have a rich and satisfying life. That is why he wrote Ecclesiastes chapter 11. That is why Jesus came. Not to be served, but to serve. And give his life a ransom for many. Embracing your life in the mist is for today and forever. So... Embrace your life in the mist with limited understanding and with unlimited joy. It's an imperative.
It's a command. Let's obey it. Father, you are a sovereign God who is working out your plans and purposes right in our very midst. The Apostle Paul expressed his confidence in your plan. I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue it until it's finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Father, may Paul's confidence be our confidence. May our confidence not be in ourselves or others, not in position or power, neither possessions nor personality. Enable us to embrace life in the mist with limited understanding and unlimited joy so that we may have life and have it to the full, both now and forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.